getting high On our own supply, we getting high On our own supply, hey, giving you the game All facts, no lies, Hello and welcome to High on Our Own Supply, a podcast produced by Confident Cannabis. I'm your host, Brad Bogus. On the industry that know it's trending, you gon' need to listen up, cause we got the men views. When it come to cannabis, we got the realest news, giving you the word on the street and a pro tip. A different guest every episode, so don't trip. Today we're gonna be talking with Vincent Ning of Navis, one of California's leading distributors. We'll also be talking about how Oregon's oversupply dynamic last year gave rise to this year's distillate downturn and California's doubling of licenses, how retailers can find products to promote during the coronavirus pandemic, and learn a little bit about the origins of the entourage effect and why determining what it is is so challenging. But first, how did you like that new intro music? The new High on Our Own Supply podcast theme song was created by Tone Oliver, an Oakland-based hip-hop artist. Check him out at toneoliver.com and listen to his music over on Spotify or SoundCloud. He has a number of songs that could have worked for this podcast, particularly Passion Fruit. However, after talking with him, he wanted to write something custom for us, and he absolutely nailed it. I am so proud of his work that I actually want you to listen to the whole thing before we jump into the rest of the episode. Here we go. Hey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Look, look. Hey, we getting high. How'd you like it? Definitely go give Tone a listen and show him some love. And now, the word on the street. Hear the word on the street? Today's word on the street is brought to you by Hannah Hayes. Hannah used to own Oregon Coast Cannabis, a dispensary in, well, Oregon. And she's currently the sales manager of Confident Cannabis. And she always has her ear to the ground on what's happening in the industry. Okay, Hannah, thanks for joining. Uh, The word on the street is that distillate prices are going down in Oregon. Um, we've been kind of tracking this uh, this entire progression really since last year when the OLCC report came out saying that there was a massive oversupply on the market and that cannabis flour was selling for like 250 to $350 a pound. Subsequently, we were able to see that, you know, a bunch of processors and manufacturers were buying up all that cheap flour, um, which was not shelf stable and turning it into distillate to kind of stockpile and keep in their own stores until they were ready to release it out into the broader market. Uh, now, a year uh, since that last OLCC report, um, we're starting to see prices come down in distillate. So the assumption here is that all of that distillate that has been stored is now moving its way into the market, causing an oversupply of distillate as a sort of delayed reaction from the oversupply in flour. What are your thoughts there and how are you seeing that happening in Oregon? What are the distillate prices looking like in Oregon as a result? So we've 
definitely seen distillate prices going uh, down over the past year and a half here. Um, we know that manufacturers win at economies of scale. So those who were well positioned to do so went in and bought a lot of flour when it was at mm. yeah, 250, 300. You know, we even heard of some farms that were going out of business, just fire selling everything for 200 a pound. Um, and then we've talked to manufacturers that, you know, wanted to be able to offer, of course, cheaper products to their uh, consumers, to their buyers. Um, and then we also have heard of people who, you know, were telling us, yeah, I want to own that export market when it opens up. So I bought a bunch of flour and I'm storing that away to have some high quality Oregon extracts once I can sell that across state lines. I imagine the vape crisis also had some element of, of why distillate prices have gone down, yeah? Absolutely. So last year, right as we were seeing prices for flour start to come up and stabilize more was when the vape crisis really started to unfold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, manufacturers, they didn't have access to that cheap flour anymore. They had an excess of product built up, um, you know, especially in Oregon, where we do have a small state, small population. Um, people had produced a lot more than what Oregonians alone can consume and then the vape crisis just really deepened what was happening there. You know, we saw the demand for distillate, cartridges, um, other uh, volatile extractions uh, go way, way down. Yeah, yeah. So where we're at now is, you know, it seems to be an oversupply of distillate or an under demand of distillate. Um, and therefore, prices have gone down. What are we seeing uh, in distillate prices in Oregon right now? You know, anecdotally, even last year, right at the beginning of the vape crisis, we were hearing that for, you know, um, the right buyer with, uh, you know, really, really huge quantities, we were hearing of a dollar a gram. What we've seen more commonly starting last year was for, you know, anything over a liter, um, you know, even four dollar or 4,000 a liter, um, wow. that 4,000 to 6,000 a liter is what we're seeing most commonly. Mm -hmm. Um but we do see, you know, $2,000 a liter. Um, you know, right now, I think that people have um, learned more about what they need as far as quality. So it is harder to move distillate that's below 80% these days as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so shifting gears into California a little bit, we're noticing that the licenses have just recently doubled in California. There's a lot of people in the California market talking about, um, you know, this uh, potential for a whole bunch of cheap flour to be hitting the market. You've got license stacking happening in Santa Barbara. So you've got really cheap, big ag production of cannabis flour happening. With those licenses doubling, I imagine we're probably going to see a similar pattern to Oregon in that you get an oversupply of flour, flour prices drop, distillate and manufacturer uh, companies come and they buy that for that economy of scale, like you mentioned. And then that will correspond to an eventual, maybe a year later, distillate crash in prices. Do you, do you see that also happening in California? Do we, can, can we expect something similar to, to occur there? You know, it's interesting. It's kind of already happening in some ways. Um, the California market right now, with everyone just moving into, you know, being fully on metric with the seed to sale tracking system, um, still seems to be more opaque. You know, again, there's more players here than in Oregon, um, still a small industry overall. But when we talk to some folks on the manufacturing side, they've told us already that they've been cutting back on their production because prices have cratered 80 percent in the past year. Um, then when we talk to folks in other part of the state, you know, distributors who are looking for more distillate to fill the cartridges for the brands that they represent, um, they're having trouble finding distillate. You know, that's what yeah. they need the most. And um, there's a huge disconnect in pricing. You know, again, we're hearing of 
uh, I can't move my distillate for 2000 a liter. And then other folks who are looking to buy that are saying the lowest price I've ever seen is, you know, 6000 a liter. So that's what I'm looking for, for above 80% THC. Yeah, yeah. So California right now, we're looking at, you know, around five, 6000 a liter probably, uh, uh, whereas Oregon is is down in some instances to 2000 a liter, but really hovering around four seems like there's there's definitely some uh, room to go down in California, most likely. Yeah, I think so. I think for both states, we are going to see prices continue to come down for the foreseeable future. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. I appreciate it. And that's the word on the street. So the coronavirus is now a full-blown pandemic, and it's affecting so much of the entire economy, let alone the cannabis industry. People are justly afraid of social situations, but also don't want to stop spending time with friends and family. So how does a cannabis retailer handle this? That's this episode's pro tip. Pro tip. Offer a wide variety of mini joint packs in your store. I'm a huge fan of sharing joints with groups, sanitary concerns aside, but with this coronavirus on, I'm not trying to swap spit with folks who may not be washing their hands. That's okay though. We can still share from a mini joint pack and have our own smokes. So carry more of these types of products in your stores and then promote it to your customers and you have a winning answer to any questions regarding social cannabis consumption during this coronavirus fear. Pro tip. Okay, now let's go to my conversation with Vince Ning, CEO of Navis Distribution out of California. And make sure to stay tuned after the interview for our fun fact this episode, which is about the entourage effect. Vince, thanks for joining me today, man. Hey, Brad. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. I just want to jump right in. Um, on your website, it says your mission is to empower the world to discover cannabis by providing choice, access, and innovation. So how do you do that? Like, what does a distributor like Nabis do to find producers that match that mission? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that more speaks to sort of like what our purpose and why we are here. Um, and as far as like finding partners, um, you know, around like producers and brands um, on the supply side and then, you know, retailers and dispensaries and delivery businesses on the demand side, um, you know, what we're really here to do is provide um, just that, you know, choice, access um, and and innovation. And so, um, you know, having the most variety of products, having them be widely available across the state of California and eventually to other geographies and regions. And then also the innovation part is that we build our own software and, um, you know, help automate a lot of the sort of burden of overhead of compliance uh, work that needs to be done every single time a product needs to be delivered or distributed anywhere across the state, um, just due to the fact that, um, you know, cannabis is still a controlled substance and uh, it's a very highly regulated space. Yeah, when it comes to providing choice, are you uh, talking more to the idea of having just a wide breadth of producers, or are you also looking for producers that are making multiple products that have choices in and of themselves kind of already built in? Yeah, definitely both. I mean, the way, generally speaking, the way we see it is, uh, you know, making sure that we fill out uh, a lot of the sort of permutations of uh, product types and price points. Um, And so, uh, you know, having more and more selection in, 
you know, every single category um, and every single price point is, uh, you know, very helpful as far as um, dispensaries working with us, um, just because, you know, that way they don't have to go talk to every single producer just to get their products and they can just talk to us. Um, and it, yeah. uh, it, it also makes, you know, our lives a lot easier too, uh, just so that, you know, we, we sort of streamline all the brands as products and deliver them all in one place at one time. So it saves a lot of operational costs um, throughout the entire uh, delivery process. Yeah. And you were talking about your tech platform. When you're working with producers in California, are you finding that they are more or less um, sort of uh, prepared for some side of kind of tech enablement like do they do they tend to understand what you're trying to do on the tech side or do, does that take like quite a bit of massaging to get them to understand what you're doing yeah no it's a great question at first it was definitely um a little bit tougher uh i would say you know when we first started this business it, we it was all analog we basically would deliver products uh ourselves across california um and uh you know that we, we weren't doing that many deliveries um uh, maybe like six a week or something like that and um you know we would just be able to fill out all the paperwork ourselves and be able to handle everything and track everything on just like a you know excel spreadsheet or like a google yeah. sheet um but now we do uh, you know, several thousand deliveries a month. And so it's, it's, uh, it's grown quite a bit. And, you know, with all that volume and with more people helping out, um, there's definitely uh, a lot more room for errors and mistakes and things falling to the cracks. And so the sort of technology component of it is almost, um, you know, necessary. And over time, the way we've gotten adoption was, I remember having to like email brands and being like, hey, like, can you uh, put the order in on our website rather than through, uh, through, through text or right. through email? That way we can track it better and you can log on and see your orders better. Um, and uh, it just take, it took a little bit of conditioning there. Some were very open to it right from the get go. Others, uh, you know, took a moment, but uh, once they sort of started using it, um, it's almost like they, they didn't really know what they needed until they, they had it. Yeah, no, um, exactly. That's that's when yeah that's when we started you know forcing everyone to just use the website and everyone everyone definitely got it at that point. It, it took about it took a couple months, but you know we got there. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, I uh, it segues me to another question actually, which was that uh, you got your start with your business partner June as delivery drivers. So uh, what did you see there that informed your vision of Nabis? What problems did you see that needed to be solved, and and do those problems still exist? Yeah. So back in the day, we, we were delivery drivers uh, for the sake of just like research in the field. Um, we were just trying to meet people, uh, trying to see how the supply chain really worked. And, you know, the fact that we could go do deliveries ourselves uh, and, you know, meet everyone uh, and there was no real structure to the whole process. Um, you know, what we found was that, uh, you know, people were self-distributing their products across the entire state. Um, and that was just purely inefficient from like an economic standpoint. Right. Um, and then also once the licenses came out, uh, Jan 1, 2018, um, you know, it actually was legally required to have a distribution license in order to ship and transfer product from uh, point A to point B. Um, and so at that point, we realized that, you know, we sort of looked at the numbers around what the cannabis industry was projected to hit as far as like market size and consumer demand growth. And we were sort of trying to add up what we were doing, uh, driving around product and, you know, the, the sort of processes 
and uh, the scale of the infrastructure in place to get deliveries done to sort of service all that demand uh, was just not going to be enough. Um, and so that's when we realized that uh, no one was really doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, bigger players that would, like other third-party logistics companies like FedEx or DHL, um, wouldn't touch cannabis. So it was a, a, a very unmet need um, that, uh, that we started, you know, doing deliveries for and then eventually um, just one brand at a time and more deliveries, uh, more deliveries started happening. And, um, you know, that's how we built um, our business today in this niche. Yeah, yeah. You also mentioned that in uh, 2018, California made it uh, a mandate that uh, distributions required to sell to retailers. Um, this, how would you say that the state of California has made uh, your life either harder or easier? Um, considering that distributions required, it seems to have set distributors up nicely, kind of like the the beer industry's three tier system. Mm -hmm. do, do you agree? Do you disagree? Or, or are there other factors about what California has done that has made this either harder or easier on Navis? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, generally, directionally, everything is, um, you know, is fine, uh, just because that's how other regulated industries operate with this whole three tier model, having, you know, a supplier, a third party distributor, um, and then a retailer. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I totally understand why it's necessary from like a control perspective and QA um, and, uh, and compliance perspective. Um, however, I think California sort of released it, um, you know, not necessarily to their own fault, but I would just say that, you know, the sort of implementation process was a bit slow and, right. um, you know, different cities weren't all caught up at the same point. And so the application process and getting licensed, um, you know, all that definitely wasn't a walk in the park. Um, it definitely and, seems to know, be a consensus around the industry. I think everybody seems to agree that implementation, for whatever reason, was bungled pretty hard. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, the again, it's just like the intention was there. I think the execution was a little poor. Um, it almost felt like we were working with a little startup in the government itself. And, right. you know, that was really tough for them to just overnight roll out all these licenses and start mandating these things. And, um, you know, it took people a lot of time to catch up. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about other states, right, you said that uh, the way California set this up, like you understand seeing why distributors were a part of the system for compliance reasons and to make sure everything, you know, passes QA. Do you think other states have done this wrong, like states like California, I mean, uh, Colorado or Oregon, whom have had, you know, pretty long existing uh, uh, recreational cannabis markets? Do you think that uh, their lack of requirement from a distribution standpoint hurts those markets or makes them less safe as far as a consumer goes? I think the argument for having a distributor is, um, you know, making sure that the, the government has one party to be able to control and QA everything. Um, you know, basically the fact that every product that a distributor ships before it goes out into the retail market has to be tested, has to be checked for uh, compliant packaging. Um, and on top of that, on the back end, we also handle the tax collections and remit that to the state uh, for excise taxes and cultivation right. taxes. Um, and so and, and also the track and trace requirements um, forcefully allow, forcefully uh, ensure that the government has uh, basically just like one party that's accountable for all these things. Um, I think in other states, it, it doesn't necessarily compromise the safety and security of the product, um, but it definitely compromises the ability for the government to be able to oversee this, uh, these activities. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's where things really fall short in case they need to remediate something. And it's really hard to sort of figure that part out um, and, and track and trace it. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it seems to be also that like producers uh, in general, um, you know, it's, it's hard to expect a cannabis cultivator to also be a track and trace expert and also be, uh, you know, a, a testing QA expert and a logistics expert which is sort of how these other states have been set up. But right. looks like to a certain extent, uh, California kind of recognized that, you know, a cultivator need only grow good cannabis. And then, you know, where it goes from there, there are other logistics companies that can step in and handle that. But to uh, imagine a Humboldt farmer going from growing, you know, on the slopes to, uh, you know, completely shifting over into being a logistics expert seems like a far stretch that a lot of other states seem to think should, was just natural. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, just economic reasoning to have all these separate split out um, uh, entities um, as part of the supply chain, uh, just because, you know, specialization, I think early days in the medical market, everyone was, you know, verticalized, Mm -hmm. um, you know, from soup to nuts, you know, cultivation, genetics, all the way through to retail. Um, And then now, uh, you know, the state, there's actually two reasons, Uh, you know, one is, there's an economic benefit to having separation of concerns. Um, but then the other is that, you know, essentially the state, uh, because of all these equity programs and they want to give back to the community, I think they don't want um, big businesses coming in and taking over the entire supply chain and sort of block blocking everyone else out. Um, and so a lot of states sort of in the rec market mandate that you have this sort of separation across supply chain in order to ensure that, you know, you're only focusing on one part of the supply chain. You sort of need to work together with others in order to, uh, you know, get products to the retail market. Yeah. Do you think that there's a future left for, you know, what, what, however long that future might be uh, for retailers who are also growing their own cannabis and doing their own testing in these states where verticalization is very strong? Uh, do, do you see that tapering out over time or do you see that becoming sort of just a continued state by state, you know, kind of model? Um, I think generally speaking, it will it's been state by state, obviously, but I think more people are, or sorry, more states are uh, following the three tier system. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're sort of following California's practices, even though it's not the best. Um, they seem to uh, see this as sort of the an experiment that um, has helped. Um, and so in other states, uh, you know, having a distribution license or even like a transportation only license, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, is more common these days, for instance, in like Illinois or like Massachusetts and hopefully New York later this year. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let, let's shift gears a little bit into talking about producers. Um, you know, you, ha- you have a lot of producers that you represent a lot of brands on your site. How do they find you? And what suggestions can you make to producers out there to connect with a trust for, trustworthy and successful distributor like Mavis? Yeah, um, you know, typically, you know, because of uh, going back to sort of like the relationship uh, driven way that we work with people um, and along with the rest of the industry, a lot of it, it a lot of uh, producers have found us just through word of mouth. Um, you know, from the initial couple of brands that we started working with, um, referring us to other brands. Um, that's how we sort of built up our initial book of business. And uh, over time, you know, that that word spreads um, on, on both sides, both the producer side and the retail side, because as we start getting bigger and bigger brands, um, they started distributing uh, much more widely across the state. So that yeah. sort of uh, allowed us to go to so many different places. And, you know, our, our drivers are essentially such a big physical component of 
our, you know, obviously our, our delivery network, but in a, in a, in an indirect way, they're also sort of marketing our brand and our products as well. And so every time they show up to uh, a doorstep to deliver products, retailers know about us yeah. and, you know, there's this sort of virtuous cycle where now every time a new brand goes and tries to talk to or sell to a new retailer um, that they might not be in, um, you know, retailers, because they want to streamline their intake process through, you know, a few distributors or a few selected um, parties, um, they'll oftentimes just refer uh, whoever they think the best distributor is. And oftentimes that, that, that is Nabis. And so um, new brands ultimately hear about us through multiple, from multiple different directions, whether it be from our brands or from our retailers. And it's kind of created this virtuous echo chamber. And so for us, that's why, you know, trust, um, building trust in our brand and our business is so important um, just because of the fact that, you know, we, we need to make sure that the community is behind, um, you know, our service. Right. Um, so my next question, you may actually have just answered, but, um, but, but I'm going to make you distill it down to, to, to one thing, because there's always a lot of things that companies do to, to sell or to market and to entice new brands. And so what I want to know is what has been your most successful strategy to entice new brands to join the Navis family? Is it sponsoring events or having a rockstar sales team, providing great services and technology? Uh, you can't say all of them. I just want you to to, uh, to I just want to know the one that you would put all your chips on if you had to. Hmm. If I had to, uh, I mean, I would say like organically, it's just word of mouth. And so a lot of that, if if we were to like pay for something um, and and create a sort of lead gen funnel for ourselves, ultimately like trade shows uh, and conferences. Uh, you know, some are better than others, of course. Yeah. Um, but making sure that we always have a presence in the community, um, and you know, we show up to events um, and we do a good job there. Um, it has been has been super helpful um, in terms of uh, you know building our brand publicly. Um, word of mouth is more of this organic thing that's hard to sort of control. Besides, um, you know, besides doing a good job with existing customers. Um, but yeah, if I were to pick one thing that you could control, um, it would be just going to, uh, the best conferences and, and doing a good, um, display, having good display there. Yeah. So, so for brands that are like looking at the, the conference event field in the cannabis space, which is frankly overwhelming, uh, what would you say is like the top, uh, conference or event for deal flow or the, maybe the top three, if you can't pick one? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for whom, for like a brand or for a distributor or, uh, well, I mean, I guess both because like really these two have to meet each other to be able to do some really good deals. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if I'm a brand looking for a distributor, uh, you know, what, what would you say is like the best way for me to find them and connect with them through events? And, and then like, you know, on the flip side, if that's different than what, what's the best event for a distributor, maybe selling to retailers, yep. uh, you know, what, what, what would those conferences or events look like for you? Yeah. What do you think? Are those? I, I would definitely say, um, uh, in California, at least hall of flowers has been, um, you know, really top notch right. professional event. Um, and then apart from that, and when we try to show up every, every year, um, and now they have them twice a year. So, um, you know, we're pretty excited to be part of those. Um, you know, apart from that, I would say uh, there's like Emerald Cup that everyone typically shows to, shows up to. Yep. That one's more of like a consumer conference, um, but we've demoed there. And, um, you know, a lot of brands really like to showcase their products and have, uh, you know, retail sales going on as well. So there's quite a lot of good B2B stuff happening at Emerald Cup then. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, apart from that, I would say uh, just general industry-wide networking as, as far as like globally goes, um, you know, I'd say the biggest of all biggest events right now is uh, MJ Biz in, in Las Vegas. That one is is just good to sort of go and show face and meet people. There's so much energy there. Um, however, I would say that uh, it's not, it's it, because it's so big and everyone's just sort of sprawled out across the strip. It's really good for, you know, meeting new people that you might not work with today, but then like ultimately down the road, there might be some way that, you know, you met here and then all of a sudden, um, you know, you start working together because there's a lot of people who showcase their uh, like hardware there and like bro tech and lighting and all that sort of stuff doesn't really apply to yeah. us, but um, you know, everyone does just show up. So it's like a good networking place, not necessarily a good like conference for like a, uh, like a B2B side of things go around, like, you know, on the conference floor, most people yeah. just kind of hang out on the side, but I would say those three are like, you're not going to see a lot of like internal deal flow going on in MJ biz, but maybe playing the long game, maybe seeking investment. It's a, it's a good place to play. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cause like also like people come in from, you know, out of town and right now with the way that the federal legal regulation, uh, you know, legal structure is, you can't really work with anyone from out of town. And so it's, it's sort of like a good breeding ground for relationships, but not necessarily something's going to get done that day kind of thing. Right on, right on. Um, so my last question for you is, is what is the main challenge you face in the supply chain from procurement to sales to marketing? Like what's keeping you up at night? Yeah, I would say what's keeping me up at night, a lot of it is, uh, hmm, there's a lot of things that keep me up at night. <laughs> I would say if, if I would pick one thing that, um, that, we are sort of in control of, I mean, I think everyone's going to say like, you know, the market crashing and cannabis industry has really halted the growth of, um, you know, various different players. Um, I will say though that, um, you know, if there was something that we could control, it would be uh, making sure that everyone has the working capital that they need in order to produce consistent quality inventory. Um, just because right now, uh, it, or I guess, you know, what, what sort of spun, this problem um, or what, you know, how this problem spun out was mainly because, you know, when the capital markets dried up, uh, people's working capital, uh, people used to sell to anyone and everyone um, without much heed for, um, you know, like quality sales and good leads. And, uh, and so, yeah. you know, everyone was just sort of working with everyone. And now, now that the sort of music has stopped around capital people, uh, the curtain sort of unveiled around, um, you know, who's actually going to pay. And who's not going to pay um, their their you know their their payables? And so right. um, you know that's that's where right now we're sort of reaching a lot of uh, friction is just because you know we also help with the collections process and um, we try to make sure that uh, our brands are always selling to the right parties um, that will you know help their brand grow in the biggest stores and and get paid on time so they can produce their next batch of inventory. Otherwise, you know if the whole supply chain doesn't work, then um, you know, it, it's, you know, despite us matching brands with retailers, that's like sort of what we do as a distributor. It's, it's also just like matching good partners with good partners, right. like a credit side from like a, just a working partner side. Um, and that's what really makes. Yeah. We've heard a lot of rumors there. about like really big brands, uh, not paying their bills and like, like brand names that were, were like, Oh my God, really? Like you're having a hard time getting paid from them. Uh, you know, I don't want to name names here, but, uh, but that seems to be a recurring theme lately in, uh, in California if not elsewhere. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, we're here to service both the retailers and the brands. Um, and so we just want to make sure that we're, we're making sure the right deals are happening and the right um, sales. Um, otherwise, it, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't work. Like the whole supply chain just kind of falls through, breaks through and, um, you know, our brands suffer for it or the retail partners suffer for it. And so, yeah, it's, it's just making sure that we work in the right ecosystem. And, you know, a lot of the data that we have in our in our database actually helps with that um, around, you know, we, we have over around like two years of collections, historical data. And so we sort of know, uh, you know, who is more likely to pay and who is not and um, making sure that, uh, you know, brands have that uh, information in hand um, is really critical yeah. um, to helping them guide their sales strategy. Uh, a second ago, you alluded to a potential market crash, and we recently just saw that uh, the license number in California has just doubled. Mm. Do you anticipate there being a market crash coming? Is there going to be too much flour for the market? Are we going to see sort of an Oregon-esque oversupply situation? Or uh, you know, do you think things are going to stabilize because those that, that growth will be reflected everywhere? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sort of the initial market crash I was referring to was around, um, you know, just like, I guess, like investment dollars um, coming to a grinding halt. Right. Um, and then, you know, now I think it's sort of, uh, you know, there's definitely some inefficiency in the economy and there's definitely like an oversupply of a lot of flour. Um, but at the same time, I think I mean, as far as California goes and and even globally, the, the consumer demand has increased quite a bit too. Uh, you know, from last year till, or I guess from 2018 to 2019, um, the California market grew uh, over 50%. Um, and so, you know, it's not like there's shortage of demand either. Um, so I think it's 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 been good that, you know, at least there's still consumer demand. I think the market crashing was more of like an overcorrection of, uh, you know, high valuations, high prices, and now, it sort of changed from the even an operational tone because you know I mean your valuation doesn't really affect what you do day to day, um, but it certainly does when it comes to raising capital and dilution and getting money for your business and, and taking loans. Right. Um, and so now people are uh, a little bit more uh, focused on profitability rather than just this you know grow at all costs type model, and they're really thinking about unit economics. And so um, you know those considerations take more time. Um, and there's less like frothy money being thrown out there for marketing or like product development. Um, and so there's, um, you know, people are sort of slowing down to consider their actions now, um, which, which has helped the market, I think will help the market overall long-term, but I think in the short term, um, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a lot of the, you know, the excitement before is, is dimming a little bit right now. Um, but I do think that, you know, with so many tailwinds coming up around, you know, federal legalization, more states coming online, Safe Banking yeah, Act, yeah. Um, you know, potentially getting passed. I think, you know, there, there's more good times to come. Um, but then I think right now it's just a bit of a correction. Right on. Okay, man. Well, uh, I think we can leave it at that. It's a really good thought to end on. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, Vince. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brad. This was fun. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vince Ning of Nabis as much as I did. He's a really smart dude, and I can imagine you can expect smart things coming out of their team in the future. Before we go, our fun fact this episode is about the origins of the entourage effect. At present, we think of the entourage effect as a combined reaction between both cannabinoids and terpenes. However, when Dr. Rafael Mahulam and his team of researchers discovered the entourage effect, 
the term only included cannabinoids, specifically THC and CBD, and measuring their combined reactions as being different than their individual reactions. That's what the term means. It has evolved, colloquially, to include terpenes, but there's no real research complete yet that shows how terpenes change the entourage effect of THC and CBD, or even other minor cannabinoids like CBG and THCV. If we expect that terpenes have an entourage effect with cannabinoids, the future will be even more complicated, as there are other compounds in the plant that are as present as terpenes, and these are flavonoids and terpenoids. Basically, if a terpene is going to steer an effect in a particular direction, so should the flavonoids, as they are just as potent. You don't hear much about these other compounds in relation to the entourage effect. However, we'll be releasing our next chemistry snapshot content this month to dig into exactly this subject at length with one of our lab partners out of Puerto Rico, Jean Manzano. Stay tuned to learn more. It's going to be fascinating. So that's it for this episode. Make sure to subscribe on our podcast page or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Anchor.fm. And definitely go check out Tone Oliver at ToneOliver.com and share the love. High on Our Own Supply is produced by Confident Cannabis, hosted by Brad Bogus, and distributed by Pam Foe. To be considered for future podcast interviews, you can email media at confidentcannabis.com. To find out more about how Confident Cannabis can help you test, buy, and sell your cannabis products, check us out at www.confidentcannabis.com. See you next time. Turn it up, sit back, sit back. We're getting high. On our own supply, we're getting high. On our own supply, we're getting high. On our own supply, giving you the game, all facts, no lies. Yes.